Good morning, Door Creek. Hey, if you're a guest here today, my name's Mark. Glad that you're here joining us on this beautiful fall day. Um, You did get an extra hour of sleep, right? Or did you think you were coming to that next service? Anyways, for some of us, it's the only weekend of the year that we're actually on time to a service, and it is encouraging, so this is kind of, this is encouragement week in the life of the church. So um, I send a note to the congregation here. If you're a visitor, it's called a note from Mark, and I do that a couple times a month. And um, this last weekend on Friday, I sent a note that just talked about connecting giving with growing. And it's not something that we always connect. A lot of times I hear people say, I want to grow in my faith. And it's all about knowledge. And actually, our faith grows a lot like our bodies. When we use it, when we exercise, it grows. And one of the easiest places to grow our faith is to exercise our faith in one of the hardest places, and that is with money, giving, living generously, giving generously. There's a reason Jesus talks a lot about money, because it's the easiest next thing to trust in for things that only God can deliver, for security, for identity, for happiness, That's why when John's calling people to repent and turn back to God, and they say, well, what should we do? He starts talking about their stuff, about, hey, do you got two coats? Then give one to someone who doesn't. You got more food than you need? Then give give food away to people who are hungry. He talks about money to the tax collectors and money to the soldiers, right? So we were talking about this past note from Mark about my journey, Lori's in my journey, it started with quarters at a kitchen table where every Sunday before we went to church, my dad had a quarter for me and my three sisters. And uh, most of the times it went in the offering. Sometimes I snuck to the pharmacy and got a candy bar, but most of the time it went in the offering. And he was just training me to give. So I, I said I wanted to share something that's been helpful to people in just kind of assessing where you're at and what it looks like to begin this journey or take the next step of growing our faith in this matter of giving. So um, the first thing is just to get on the ladder. So I don't know if you know this, but um, half the people in churches across America don't give at all. I don't think that's really different about here at Door Creek. Half of us are giving and half of us aren't. So get on the ladder. That's kind of an easy one. Um, There's a group, probably about 40% of us, that would be occasional givers. Now, occasional givers, you've moved beyond first time, but it's kind of like this hit or miss, and if you're like me, you're the cashless blunder, right? I'm always opening up my wallet, and there's always more receipts than there is green stuff, right? Because my kids, I don't know what's going on, but it's just sucking right out of my wallet. It's not there. So you come to church, you haven't really thought about it, you haven't planned it, and all of a sudden you're going by the box, you go, oh, yeah, ooh. And you you may pull out a 10 or a 20, and you give occasionally, all right? Then there's some of us that are actually very intentional. And it's it's actually, it's part of the budget. There's there's a line. And for some of us, the discipline has been, hey, right off the top, I'm going to give a dollar amount or a proportion back to God as an expression of my love, of my trust in Him, that this part represents my whole life, God. And then there's some who've actually moved from, Uh, that area up to a tithe, which is simply a word that means a tenth. So the Bible talks a lot about giving a tithe, but actually if you read 
the Old Testament add up all the tithes, it's like 23%, not 10%. But anyways, 10% historically has been one of those kind of, hey, that's a good place to try and get to. Actually, 10% is what we as leaders hold ourselves to as in terms of just giving back to God and what's expected to us as leaders. And then there's a bunch who uh, will go and uh, give above and beyond that, the tithe. So here's the deal. Get on the ladder. Find yourself on the ladder and trust God to take the next step and connect this to your spiritual growth. Before you connect it to, oh, this is a pitch. I know what this is about. This is about the church budget. Now, actually, money has always been a heart issue for God. It's always been a heart issue. And so I want to encourage us. We're growing generously. We're growing in generosity. $8,000 this last month was given to help with Ebola relief. That's huge. That's making a huge difference for Pastor Matthew, our other partners in the city. Your generosity through all in. We helped them build a training center. You know what happened this week at the training center? 200 people from the community met to see a movie and get supplies all related to the Ebola crisis that's breaking out right in the middle of that city. So this isn't a time to say, God, I'm going to catch up with you on this thing when I got some cash. Because right now it's tight. and I've got debt. No, this is the time to start. However small it is, trusting God and watching him grow your faith as he continues to show himself faithful to each of us. All right, let's pray as we get into our message today. God, we love, your word says, because you loved us first. And we give reflexively out in response to your grace to us. And so, Lord God, we are just asking that you continue to grow us and that you connect our, our giving with our growth, that you'd free us from hands that are clenched and attitudes that say mine, and that you'd give us the exhilarating joy of being givers like you and experiencing life and sharing life with those that you've called us to serve. So now, Lord, as we come to your word, what we always desire is to hear it and to do it, to believe it's a good word for us. And so use your spirit to help me teach your word and to help each of us receive your word and live on that line. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So today in Mark chapter 4, and you can turn there. Excuse me, did I say Mark? That would be my name. We're going to study Luke. <laughs> all right, just checking. All right, um, in Luke chapter 4, we're going we're gonna to catch up with Jesus giving his first sermon in his home church. I never had the opportunity to do that, but reading this story, I'm kind of glad. But I can tell you about my first sermon. It was a Pacific Garden mission, downtown Chicago on State Street, a rescue mission. And you can imagine, there are all kinds of people there that day when I was preaching my first sermon. I was a little, I was a little, well, I was very nervous. This isn't a crowd. I was, I was a youth pastor hanging around junior high kids. I grew up a suburban kid. This crowd, that I wasn't used to this kind of a crowd. And they were kind of raucous. Those who were awake, they were kind of raucous. Some of them may have had a little too much to drink, if you know what I mean that day. <laughs> So for some, they were sleeping. For some, they thought it was a great sermon. And for others, they were hecklers. Looking back, I realize not much has changed in 30 years. All right, so, 
Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and he gives a very important first message that Luke puts at the very front of his public ministry. So here's Jesus going public now. He's been in the wilderness. It's been 30 years of obscurity. Now he's going public, and his first sermon tells us everything about who he is and what he's about and how he's going to go about doing ministry and who it is that he wants to reach. So look down at verse 14 of, that would be Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee. Galilee would be up north, okay, by the Sea of Galilee, up north in Israel. And he returned from the wilderness to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. All right, a couple things as we get in and uh, get started here. First is synagogue. What's a synagogue? A synagogue literally means a gathering place. They first started out, the people of God, with a tabernacle. It was a movable tent where God's presence was there, and they would worship God, right? Then it became a temple built by Solomon. When God's people were dragged out of the promised land into exile, like in the Babylon in the 6th century BC, they started building and meeting in these places they called the synagogue for instruction, for worship and prayer. There actually was a liturgy that would go on, and we're catching up with that liturgy. It would start with the people of God saying together out loud the Shema, this greatest of Old Testament passages that goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Then there were prayers. Then someone would get up and they'd read a portion from the law. The law would be the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had them broken down in 150-some sections, and each day... On the Sabbath, which would be the day of rest, the seventh day, our Saturday would be the Sabbath. Jews still worship on the Sabbath. Uh, Each of those Sabbath days of worship, they would go through one of those 156 sections, okay? So they would read from the Old Testament, then they would read from the prophets, the other portions of the Old Testament, and then there would be a sermon. They would stand in honor of God's word for the reading of God's word and Jesus sat down to teach. So that's what's going on. They've said the Shema. They've had their prayers. They've read from the Old Testament law. He has come up now to read from the prophets and to preach. And he chooses a very specific section 
in the book of Isaiah that helps us understand, first of all, who he is. When he says, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled, he's saying, I'm the one Isaiah 61 was pointing towards. This one who has the spirit of the Lord on him. This one who is anointed to bring good news and to restore the fortunes of God's people and more than just God's people. I'm the one, and this is my mission to restore. I don't have a new mission. My mission is to fulfill God's promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when he promised to Eve and Adam after they had sinned and rebelled against God, look, I'm going to send a descendant of yours who one day will crush the enemy's head. He's that one. He's the one who was said to Abraham, one of your descendants is going to make your name great. One of your descendants is going to bring blessing to all the families of the world. He's talking about, I'm that one, the promised king of David, 2 Samuel 7, who's going to set up an eternal kingdom that lasts forever. I'm the one, and this is my mission, and this is my message, to preach the good news. Look back in the end of the chapter, verse 43. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He's saying, I'm the promised king, and I'm coming to usher in this kingdom that's all about making things right that have been all twisted and broken ever since we decided we could do life better without God. I'm the one who's coming to restore all things back to their rightful place. So this phrase, the year of the Lord, to proclaim the year of the Lord, you see that in verse 19? Oh man, that was a beautiful concept for the people of God in the Old Testament. He's referencing this whole concept of a year of jubilee. So every 50 years, there was a year of jubilee where there was a new start for everything. The land that your family had 50 years ago that you may have had to lease out and sell because you were in tight times, it came back to the family. If you were a slave, you were freed. If you were in debt, the debts were canceled. I'm coming to bring in this new day, this day of deliverance, this day of restoration, this day of freedom, this day of good news for the poor, for the oppressed, for the captive, for the prisoner. For the blind. But the people of Nazareth had a bad case of hometown-itis. Have you ever heard of that? It's a perception problem. Where all we can do when we see that person is remember them when they were a kid. And so we can't see them for who they are today. You know what I'm talking about, hometown-itis? So I remember growing up at Winneka Bible Church, and there were some missionaries the Baptista brothers. One of them became an elder at the church that I served at in Wheaton. He was a great guy. He was a president of a college. His brother was a great missionary. Bob Baptista and his brother. As long as I was around Winneka Bible Church, whenever the Baptista brothers came back, all I heard about is, boy, you should have known those boys when they were little. They were some rascal trouble. That, that, hometown-itis. You know what I'm talking about. When I took Lori to uh, my 10th high school uh, reunion, you know, I, my high school is huge, 4,500 students. My graduating class was almost 1,200. And I, I, I don't even know why I went. But anyways, I went. We ran into Francie Slave, and I forget the other girl's name. And when they saw me with Lori, 
this beautiful young lady who was my wife, they just, their, their, their jaws just dropped like, what's going on here? And all they started doing is talking about what a goofball kid I was in junior high, hometown-itis. <laughs> Nazareth has a bad case of hometown-itis. Because right on the heels of, chap, of chapter 4, verse 22, where Luke tells us about their amazement over his gracious words, here's what they say. See it at the end of verse 22? Isn't this Joseph's son? How can, how can he say today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled? How can he be the one that the Spirit of the Lord is on, who's anointed to preach good news to the poor, to bring in the, the year of the Lord's? How could he be that guy? We know who you are. You're the carpenter's kid. You're no Messiah. Jesus picks up on the statement, doesn't he? Their question. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. You can't find that proverb, by the way, in the Bible, but apparently it was a proverb, a saying, a pithy saying that was true. Hey, if, if, if you really are who you say you are, because this is, this is exactly what's going on in, in the temptations, right? If you are the son of God, prove it. Turn the stone into bread, right? So they're, they're just, they're wanting the same thing. Prove it, because we just think you're the carpenter's son. We, actually, we know you're the carpenter's son. So prove that you're the guy from Isaiah 61 that Israel is supposed to pin their hopes on. Heal yourself. And by the way, Jesus used that proverb because he's probably thinking they think he's sick, deranged. You better heal yourself, do a miracle of healing, and you better start with yourself because you're not in your right mind. Heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. That'll become his headquarters. We'll look at Capernaum in just a second. Do a miracle. We've heard that you've been doing miracles, so prove that you are the anointed one from Psalm uh, Isaiah 61. Prove it. Do a miracle. What does Jesus say? Truly I tell you, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he goes on to tell them about Elijah and Elisha, these two great prophets of Israel, and how they weren't accepted in their hometown. So he comes on the scene, and it's really clear what he's about. The purpose of his ministry is to fulfill the promise of God by bringing deliverance even to those that are often overlooked, the vulnerable, the marginalized, blessing to all the families of the world. In his message is the good news of the kingdom of God, that he's the king and this is what his rule brings and this is who he pursues with his love, the vulnerable, good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, healing for the blind, the year of the Lord's favor. So, Go down to verse 31. Now, Luke takes us to Capernaum, which will become his headquarters. Capernaum is at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, that's really interesting, right? We just read that the people of Nazareth, they don't know who he is. Now we meet a demon-possessed man, 
And the demon says, I know who you are. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives order to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. So it's the same day, later on in the Sabbath. Now Simon, this would be Peter's other name, Simon Peter. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Now, the key of sunset here is Sabbath is over at sunset. There actually were restrictions on how far you could travel. It would no longer be a day of rest if you were taking these long journeys. So the sun is set, the Sabbath is over, they've heard Jesus is healing people, And doing great things, and they're bringing everyone they know and love who has got an ailment to Jesus. Verse 41, moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. It wasn't time for that to go public. And these weren't the guys to make it public, the demons. Verse 42, at daybreak. Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because this is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So, his mission, what he's about, who he is, his message, it's unfolding here in the text. Now we, we get a better understanding of how he went about accomplishing the mission. And this becomes really informative for us as we think about, well, if we're his followers, his mission is our mission, right? His message is our message, right? The way he did ministry ought to guide how we do ministry. So we're taking note of all this. And here's what we note about this, and it goes all the way back to verse 14, that he's operating in the power of the Spirit. So what do we know about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's role in Christ's life? Well, he was full of the Spirit. We remember that the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, filled with the Spirit and full of the Spirit. The Spirit led him into the wilderness, right? John says, I'm going to baptize you with water. He's going to one day baptize you with the Holy Spirit, And now this one who's full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, is empowered by the Spirit for ministry. Now, now this is where it starts. Like, if you close your eyes and start imagining, so what does that look like? What does it look like to be empowered with the Spirit? It starts getting maybe spooky, maybe weird, like, whoa, what is this? What is this Holy Spirit-empowered kind of life? And Luke just unfolds it, and Jesus unfolds it. It takes, in a sense, some of the mystery out of it, but the beauty and the power into it. So what do we know about him ministering in the power of the Spirit? Well, we know that the Spirit empowered his preaching so that his preaching was that which had great effect. didn't mean it had universal effect, but it was changing things. When he talks about preaching 
in Luke 16, 16, he talks about preaching the kingdom of God brings people to the place where they want to get in. That's the spirit taking the truth of God's word, impressing on someone where they want to respond to it. So there's spirit-empowered preaching. In fact, if you notice the bookends, we're always looking for bookends. Did you see the bookends in 14, verse 14 and verse 44? The bookends of Jesus' ministries, he's preaching, he's proclaiming, he's teaching. Christ's mission moves forward through the proclamation of the word. But it's not just proclamation, it's demonstration too. So there's miracles. How do we see the Spirit empowering Jesus for ministry? In his preaching and teaching. How do we see it? In his doing good through miracles, which do a couple of things. In fact, the, the word in the Greek for miracles is a sign. A sign is always pointing to something beyond itself. The miracle is pointing to authenticate the messenger and his message. And the miracles of Christ aren't just like these, hey, I'm going to do something really cool. Watch this. It's like compassion, his miracles. And what it is, it's a demonstration of the kingdom of God that he says is beginning, not yet fully complete, and what it looks like for the kingdom of God to show up in real space and time. People whose lives are ravaged, maybe even tormented by a demon, find release and peace from that which was literally tormenting their soul. Blind people can see. Do you see what's going on with the miracle? It's demonstrating not just who Jesus is and that his message is true and you better listen to it, but it's demonstrating what the kingdom does. It restores things. It restores things. And we may not be able to perform miracles like Jesus. We may, but we may not. But we can do things where the love of Christ and his uh, his gospel becomes lived out in our lives and we start doing good works that are compassionate and it has that same effect in the power of the Spirit. He's depending upon the Spirit. He's teaching in the Spirit's power and preaching in the Spirit's power and doing miracles in the Spirit's power. And here's one I wasn't expecting. Prayer. You know, where's prayer? I didn't see prayer. I didn't read prayer. I didn't either, but I found it there in verse 42, the solitary place. So at first I was thinking, well, the model here is solitude. And if you read people that talk about spiritual distance, they'll talk a lot about solitude. But the way Jesus practiced solitude wasn't just getting away and vegging. Meditation for a Christian is not about emptying our mind. It's about filling our mind. It's not about religious practices. It's about a relationship. When he's in the wilderness, of course he was tempted for 40 days. But why was he fasting? To focus and connect on the Father. What's he doing in these lonely places? By the way, the lonely place, same word as the wilderness. Back at the beginning of the chapter. We'll go to 516. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places for what? Prayer. Operating in the Spirit's power, is connected to prayer. And now I'm going, uh-oh, because I get the word thing. I get the doing good, because, you know, I'm more of a Martha than I am a Mary. I, I get that. I want to do stuff. But this whole thing of, hey, Mark, you can't be operating in the power of the Spirit 
and saying, God, you understand, I'm really busy. I'm going to kind of connect with you throughout the day, but I really don't have time to set aside some time and just connect with you and pray. It's really good to connect these things, that Jesus is operating in the Spirit. He's the Son of God. He is the word that all of creation came into existence through. But here he is on this earth, depending, relying, doing ministry in the power of the Spirit. And that's changing the way he teaches and preaches. That's empowering the miracles. And that has everything to do with a life of prayer. And you know, I was thinking about just laying a big old guilt trip on all of us right about now because prayer is so hard for me. This attitude of prayer through the day, that's good. But actually taking a chunk, I mean, even a small chunk, can I just say, that's hard. It's hard for me. Man, I get get up. I want to get going. It's just just not how I'm wired. I got all these reasons. So I was thinking, man, I'm feeling pretty guilty. I don't let the church feel guilty too so we kind of share the love (laughs) but I want to get you excited I I want to get you excited about can you believe this that if we placed our faith in Christ Ephesians 1 says the spirit is in us and that spirit by the way is the powerful spirit that took Jesus flatline dead body and raised it to new life I've got access to that spirit Spirit in my life. Oh my goodness. I have access to that kind of power. How could that transform the things that are really hard in my life right now? How could that give me hope for the things that I think are impossible to change? How could that help me forgive the person I cannot forgive? How could that help me? I and mean, you just keep, keep going, keep going, get excited that we can do life in the power of the Spirit. And I, man, Anybody got a self-propelled mower? Man, they're so much better than push mowers, aren't they? And I'm convinced that self-propelled living is so much better than dependent living. And it's not true. It's not true. Paul says, when I was weak, then I knew your strength and I was strong. Jesus operated in the power of the Spirit. What in the world has happened to us, to me, that we would think somehow that we don't need to do what Jesus did, that somehow the prayer is an optional thing. Let's get excited about the beautiful, powerful resource that we have in the Spirit of Christ in us, living through us. So that's what he was about, doing ministry in the power of the Spirit Preaching and teaching, proclaiming, demonstrating it through the miracles, through good works, through prayer. So then the last question is, we know what he's about. We know what his message was. We know how he went about it. So who was it for? Oh, this is the surprise of the text. I skipped this section so we could finish with it right here. Go back to 24. This is what hometown-itis will do when we don't recognize Jesus. See, we can have hometown-itis where Jesus is just a good guy. We love his teaching, but we're not so sure about some of the other stuff. We don't accept his 
authority as the Son of God. So he's talking about, okay, you don't believe who I'm at? You want me to do a miracle like I did at Capernaum? Hey, a prophet's that without honor in his hometown. Now, now listen to this, verse 24. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Elijah was a great Old Testament prophet, did a lot of miracles. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, to any of the widows in Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He wasn't honored in his hometown. He was honored in a place called Sidon, a little backwater town called Zarephath right along the Mediterranean. That's where he was honored. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Now listen, listen to this. All the people in the synagogue were furious. Wait, 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 wait. What, was, what, what did we just read in 22? All spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now we're talking about just ticks of the clock later. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And by the way, that wasn't to teach him a lesson. It was to end his life. But he walked, I love this, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. <laughs> All right, here's the question. How does the church, so we're going to call the synagogue the church, How's a church that loves Jesus' teaching and in a minute want to kill him? How does that happen? That amazement goes to great fury and anger where they're just in awe of his hometown kid's gracious words and now they want to decapitate him. They want to kill him. What's going on? What did they hear when he talked about Elijah and Elisha? Let me tell you what they didn't hear. Is, oh, that's right. Prophets aren't accepted and honored in their hometown. They didn't get a lesson on hometown-itis. They got a lesson on the mission of God, and they hated what they heard. That God's mission isn't just for the circle of people that they want included in the mission of God. They were all excited about the good news being preached to the poor. They're poor. They're blind. The people that were captives and imprisoned by demons, they'd drawn a circle around who God's mission should go towards, who deserved it and who didn't deserve it. And when he starts talking about a poor widow from Sidon, oh, that's outside the circle. And what do you mean that God showed preferential treatment to an outsider when there were plenty of widows, he said, in Israel? And are you kidding me? Naaman the Syrian? Now, just so, you know, we get this, the Syrians, which are the Arameans in the Old Testament, they're perennial enemies of God's people. And so he's healing the general of Syrian's army, and they're going, you've got to be kidding me. This was driving him nuts, that the mission of God, that Christ came to fulfill, was for all people marginalized people, people inside of Israel and people outside of Israel. And they went crazy. They went crazy. 
So let's just do a little work on Nazareth. Because you know, we're in church. And it'd be really easy for us to say, man, I love Jesus' teaching. I love Jesus. I love his teaching. And to be clear on what's going on here. So they appreciated a good sermon, right? But they refused to take it to heart. The implications that he is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and that his mission is for all the nations. They refused to take it to heart. They applauded the rescue of their own, the people that they liked, but refused to include others, those they didn't like. One of the problems of Nazareth is they, unlike Capernaum, did not recognize his authority, so they didn't submit to his authority. He's just the carpenter's kid. His words don't mean anything to me. It's just good words. They're just gracious words. They're sweet. They're kind. They're gentle. They're, wow, they're just really loving words. But I, they don't have any bearing in my life. I don't have to submit to them because he's just the carpenter's kid. And ultimately... They didn't have anger issues. They had a mission issue. And so here's what I wrote down. Here's what I've been thinking. That if we love Jesus, we'll love his mission. And if we love his mission, we'll be engaged in that mission. And then if you start backing it out, if we're not engaged in his mission, though we may say we love his teaching, we really don't love Christ because he came to pursue this mission. So then it starts, starts begging this question, raising this question, do I love Jesus, but not really love his mission? And when it gets to loving his mission, it's not a theoretical, it's not a philosophical, it's actually a practical thing. Are there groups of people, is there a person that I'd rather see burn in you know where I hope things go hard for them because of how, if I've got that attitude in my heart to a person, an individual, a family, a business, a race of people, a class of people, you keep, work it out. If any of that exists in my heart, I don't love Christ. I can say that I do. I can say I love his teaching, but I'm not embracing his mission in this world. And wherever we find pockets of resistance and until Christ comes home, let's not kid ourselves. There will be people in our life that we just assume aren't in the circle. That when that happens, when it's happening right now, this is what we do is we go and say, and thank you that everybody fits in the circle, even my small heart. Forgive me. Give me your love. Give me your spirit that I might move towards those. I had a man come up to me after the service, an elderly man, late in life, was divorced. He talked about the hatred he had for his friend that ended up breaking up his marriage and now is his former wife's husband. He talked to me how he wanted to kill him. And he talked to me about a recent accident, how this man had rolled a tractor and by the grace of God, he could tell his former wife he's been praying for him. He said, God's changing my heart. God's changing my heart. It's the power of the gospel, the spirit. So if we're on mission, 
I've got to ask myself, am I operating the power of the Spirit or just my Spirit? Some of us are worn out in life because we're doing life in our own strength. Am I engaged in his mission? That's at the heart of what we want to be about in this place. So we dream about being a Christ-centered church for all people, right? We talk about joining God and changing people into devoted followers of Christ who change the world with his love. We want to be a church that's always teaching the good news and living it out as a community together individually wherever God sends us. That's why there's a resale store called Boomerangs on the north side. Not because we thought, hey, it'd be kind of cool to get in the retail business, wouldn't it? I mean, that's a novel idea for a church. No, because we want to serve that underserved part of town. That's why we're excited to take those next steps. Why did we help Fountain of Life convert their old worship space into a community center, tear down the car wash to be a kid's sports place? Because we're committed to the mission of Christ, proclaiming and bringing in God's blessing to all people. That's why we helped build a training center. That's why we sent thousands of dollars to the people of Turkana to dig wells and plant gardens that churches would be raised up and people's lives would be restored with hope and meaning. And so I can't wait for you to get in your small groups this week and just wrestle with it. So where are the vulnerable people that God's placed in our lives and what could we do together? And I can't tell you how exciting it's been to hear the stories of small groups who've like adopted a teacher and they're like totally going after it. This teacher who's working with underserved kids and making a difference through a public school. People who are helping out as a big brother, big sister, signing up to be part of the lead literacy network or, or tutoring or going on a trip to serve and be Christ's hands and feet here at this time in those places. People who are praying that we be the church that's making a difference. So what will happen to us if we say, ah, like Jesus, like his teaching, not so sure about his mission. What's going to happen to us? I'll tell you what's going to happen will be a club with a very tight circle. And over time, the circle grows smaller and smaller and smaller. We'll close our doors to people that we don't think deserve to be in, and pretty soon they'll close the doors on this place and it'll be turned into a museum, an antique mall. So imagine... What can happen will happen by the grace of God as we join Christ in this world empowered by his spirit, moving towards those that most people move around, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, the marginalized. Jesus says to us, Door Creek, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Remember, you're the light of the world. And so let your light shine before others in such a way that they may see your good works, the gospel in action, and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you for your word. We confess the smallness of our own hearts, of sometimes wanting to define who gets in, being deceived somehow that we deserve to be in, And we just confess all that. We confess that we've operated in our own strength, 
that we don't have great conviction in the sufficiency of your word to bring about the kingdom that you bring here, that we've divided our words and our actions in a way where people can't hear what we're saying because we're not living it. We confess that, our prayerlessness, and we fall upon you, Lord Jesus, and we pray, have mercy on us, forgive us, empower us, enlighten us by your spirit to be your people this, this day, this week, together, until you come. And Lord, as we seek, even in this place, the shalom, the well-being of this city and work for it and pray for it, may we prosper even as those in our city prosper. In Christ's name we pray, amen.